listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Check out the upcoming afternoon and evening dates for parent support meetings that I facilitate at the events tab at affectautism.com, including the first week of the month where we have an expert guest to answer parent questions. Welcome listeners. Today we're discussing personal narratives with DIR expert and training leader, that's Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, Manaz Makbul, who is a speech-language pathologist in Pennsylvania, working with Mary Beth Crawford, whom I did a podcast with recently, at Baby Steps, which is a DIR floor-time clinic offering physical, speech, and occupational therapies. She also teaches certificate courses for the International Council on Development and Learning, and has taught courses and mentored internationally, including in Pakistan and in Bulgaria. Welcome, Manaz. Thank you, Daria. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we saw each other in New York. Of course, we met a number of years ago at Mod's Clinic, A Total Approach. Um, you were you did speech language therapy with my son. And so I've met you many years ago. And then we ran into each other at the um, DIR Floor Time Conference in New York City earlier this year. So it was a great way to connect. And um, you have this wonderful idea to discuss the idea of personal narratives and connecting them to the functional, emotional, developmental capacities, which spoke to me directly because I, I did my master's in personality psychology. And I loved the work of Dan McAdams and the stories we live by was a book that came out around that time that talks about personal narratives. And so to bring that into this floor time world um, and in child development is incredible. So tell me what you had in mind. Well, thank you. Yes, this is great. And I did have the wonderful opportunity to work with your son. I really enjoyed playing trains with him. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, so personal narratives is a really, it's a big interest of mine. And it's something that I've been reading up about and thinking about and just thinking about how beautifully it fits together with our floor time model. So what we're thinking about with autobiographical narratives is kind of the stories that we share with others, sharing our past experiences. And we tell stories for the purposes of social interaction, for conversation, and for forming relationships, which is the very heart of the floor time model. We find different ways to connect with people. So sharing stories is such a beautiful way. We share our experiences, emotions, information, humor. And if you think about the uh, post that ICDL did last week is to make meaning, to make meaning of our experiences. And one thing that uh, at the at the meeting, the ICDL meeting that we met each other at New York, Colette Ryan said something really beautiful. It was a really simple phrase, and I really feel like it should be plastered everywhere. She said, and then I thought about it. And what that really means, that in retrospect, I reflected upon the experience, and that it is these thoughts that we then share in personal narratives. So a simple phrase, and then I thought about it, to take time to reflect on an experience. So I thought that was really, uh, really wonderful. And that's also what piqued my interest in um, narratives and why, we, why they're so important to us. So just to go right to the beginning and uh, 
what what um, what are some of the foundational skills that we need in order to create these narratives? And, and first and foremost, as we're thinking about young children in terms of development, we might think about gay stability. And Mary Beth Crawford also talks a lot about this and the idea that we need gay stability and social referencing to understand intent. Right. We this necessary to develop affect cueing and emotional signaling to the other in order to understand our own intent and then read the intent of the other. Okay, then we need strong bilateral integration of both hemispheres because we're thinking about the concept of visualization, something that begins really early on, right? Like when little kids, they understand that mom hasn't disappeared when she's in another room because they still have this ability to visualize. So that visualizing skill obviously starts at the very concrete level, but then as we grow and as we develop, this visualization skills becomes more abstract and more complex. And we're relying on those visualization skills in order to recreate those past experiences. And then of course we rely heavily on our language skills in order to be able to share um, those experiences. So let me jump in right here and just clarify some of that um, with some examples just for listeners. Cause in, if you haven't listened to the podcast with Mary Beth Crawford, who we talked a lot about gaze stability um, and you're hearing these terms, gaze stability, emotional signaling, uh, referencing, and this and that. And, and if some parents are confused and wondering what, wait a sec, what does all this mean for my kid? So Mary Beth talked about, um, you know, if, if you're, if, a lot of times occupational therapists will do different work around, you know, balance and stability. And like you mentioned, bilateral integration, like being able to cross the midline with your hands and, um, you know, use your left arm to go across to the right side of your body and your right arm to go across to the other side of your body in different activities. Um, and, but in physical therapy, she was saying is just as important because she'll notice all of the different things that, kids might have challenge with and she really focused on that gaze stability and I think about some of the challenges that my son has um even if um I don't know how much I mean you guys would better be able to say what gaze stability's effect is on him being able to catch a ball because that could be occupational therapy could also be physical therapy um and then I had my podcast on praxis where Joanne talked about um when you go to catch a ball can you predict that it might go a little bit to the right? So you have to move your body to the right to catch it. And so gaze stability, if your capacity for gaze stability will affect that as well. So then going into visualization, like you mentioned, oh, my son will know that I'm coming back to pick him up at the end of the school day. But where he's struggling now being, you know, working in around FEDC four, five, six at his best, still just peaking into five and six, is that he does struggle with that visualization piece in the abstract. So he can enact things that he's seen in a video game and talk about Mario and the characters and make up narratives that are narratives from the game, but he isn't yet imagining things that he hasn't ever seen before. And is that also what you mean by visualization? Absolutely, absolutely. To be able to take what you haven't seen, or maybe that's something that's happened in the past that you need to recreate. So that also takes very, very strong visualizations, visualization skills. So oftentimes, we think about kids who are challenged in this area, and they might be able to give you a list of events of something that occurred. I went here and I saw this, and then I did this. But they have a really hard time 
recreating the emotion that they felt at that time. And that's the really important piece that we want to think about is recreating that emotion and what they felt about it. And then being able to have the language skills to be able to share that. And so it really does strongly rely not only on your visualization, but your short-term memory skills in order to recreate those events and the emotion. So, you know, talking about the scary house or the loving teacher or the, you know, something that was suspenseful. So we rely on our memory for facts of experiences, but we need the emotional piece for the social connection. That's what's really, really important. So right now, if we think about what goes on in school academically, it's really just um, we focus on the um, framework of narratives, like the, the characters, the main event, the, the climax, the resolution, kind of in the story retail. But I, I feel like for the kiddos that we work with, we need to really focus on that personal narrative, what they experienced um, in time and kind of really honing in that yeah. skill. And that com- the sense of time comes in the sixth capacity. And even though my son can look at the calendar and understand that next Sunday is his friend's birthday party. And, you know, in August, we'll have vacation and school will start in September and these kinds of things. He still does struggle with that internal interceptive sense of time. You know, he'll say, pick me up today at 6.30. And I'll say, no, I'm not picking up that late. I'll pick you up at 4.30. No, I want 7.30. No, I want 8.30. Clearly he doesn't know what that means because he, I don't, does he want to come home earlier? Does he want to come home later? Like, what is he saying? Um, and so that connection, that emotional connection, which, you know, goes back to Dr. Greenspan's affect diathesis hypothesis. My very first blog post on affectautism.com is that they have uh, struggles connecting their emotion and their intent with the motor planning and the actions. And I really noticed that in my son, like you said, if he's recalling events, usually he'll go, uh, I don't know. And I have to prompt, did you guys go to the splash pad on your field trip at summer camp or whatever? And he'll say, yes. <laughs> you know, but there's not that, you know, what else did you do? And he's like, um and then he might list a couple things they did but it's very brief and then right back to mario this and that who's your favorite toad character what color of toad do you like the best and you know on and on so getting that developed is what we're talking about today like how can we both uh, work on the capacities in order to strengthen the personal narrative but also how do these personal narratives impact all these other things Right. And how we can harness the power of these personal narratives to go back and impact the FEDCs and then the FEDCs push us forward as well. So it is that back and forth, that trade off that you're talking about. Right. Exactly. And we have to start with, of course, very strong capacities, foundational capacities, regulation, engagement and that reciprocity, that back and forth communication, shared social problem solving, all of these. have, And of course, strong affective communication. Right. Because even when we're sharing these stories, we're thinking about the intent of the other. We're thinking about our own intent in why we're sharing this story. What is relevant to the other person? Why might they be interested in this story? How much to share? How many how much detail to give? So it really is that back and forth um, connection between the two that I find really interesting. And like you said, it's is generally we're thinking about capacity five when we're thinking about that emotional interoception in kids. So they, they've 
we're they've had this wide range of emotional experiences and nuanced experiences and nuanced emotions and now they're being made being able to make sense of it not only from their own perspective but from another's perspective also how does somebody else feel about um their emotions or um and using that skill in the in the narrative world as well. So we have two different kinds of uh, narratives. You have semantic autobiographical memory, uh, memory, which is just kind of a list of sequences of what someone experienced, and then you have episodic, where that the emotions are strongly coded, and that's what we're really looking for, and we want to hone in on. Which is why in our in capacity four, we spend so much time in feeling the emotions. And sitting in in sitting in the emotion so that we can make sense of them. So oftentimes, I, yeah, I was going to say that that's definitely where we're all working with my son right now is really feeling that sitting in that discomfort, trying to understand what's going on with the other child because he and and for parents thinking about building these capacities in their children, it started with you know maybe my son is talking about something and like wait a second, I, I don't think he's listening. Wait, I don't know if he's interested. Do you want to check in? And, you know, just sort of getting his uh, radar on gear, like, wait, check in with that other person, see if the other child is is interested and just sort of prompting that a little bit over time, maybe it'll start, you know, start to click in. But also, you know, my son is at the point now where he'll say, so-and-so likes Minecraft. I like Super Mario, so-and-so likes Minecraft, so-and-so likes animals. So he can list it, like you said, in, in more of a semantic kind of way, but um, still working on that emotional content and understanding, like, is the intent there? And so a lot of times, even when he says stuff to me, I'll say, wait a second, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about that right now. You know, just getting him to sort of notice, like, wait, is there something like Dr. Tippy says? what's going on in that other person's mind that's different than what I'm thinking? You know, that's what we want to foster. Right. And even visualizing this idea that people have thought bubbles above their heads and what is in somebody's thought bubble? What are they thinking and how do we share that? It's usually nonverbal and affective communication that we're using to share that. Is somebody interested in what I'm saying? Did I lose them? Do they want to? And do you care if somebody is no longer interested? How do you shift with that? You How just do you gave find me that? such a good idea of drawing a picture or having even a photograph of him and a few friends and putting those thought bubbles in. What do you think he's thinking right now? That might be something I can try. <laughs> I have beautiful painted thought bubbles that we'll often use just to make it a little bit more concrete that, that this idea that's, you know, even though someone may be saying this, they're thinking this. Mm-hmm. And know what they're thinking how do we feel that and that's really like I almost think of it as like you know in our YouTube videos you can slow it down to 0.75 I almost feel like we need to hold time and slow it down to give our kids time to process process the emotion process what's going on and take a minute to feel it and understand it and then comes the reflection piece after that what did that feel like in the moment what did you think about it so kind of yes. think self-reflection piece as well yeah that's interesting and and of course what I'm thinking now is um I would love to get a self-advocate's perspective on all of this too because we hear from self-advocates that you know the way we communicate the way we interact is different it's not neurotypical and 
Um, I would love to, and I, I will run this by a few self-advocates and see if they have some input into this because it, you know, maybe they notice intent in different ways. And a lot of them say like they can feel it, even if they're not expressing it, they can feel that the emotion of the other person, but they may not have that same effective signaling that neurotypicals do. So um, that's an interesting piece that we'll have to put off to the future as well. <laughs> yeah, but a great conversation starter as well, just to think yeah. about that. So, you know, when we're thinking about uh, narratives, obviously, the, it's very heavily language based as well, because we want to be able to share with our words. It has huge language implications in terms of using tense, in terms of using detailed vocabulary. But beyond that, what we really want to try to focus on is emotional state language. So the concept of internal emotions, internal motivations. Why did you think something? How was, did the other person react? So Clearly, this has strong implications for social interaction, but if we were to extrapolate this further into the academic need, we start to think about reading comprehension, right? So once we have our own ability to visualize, once our kids get older and they're beginning to read, they're able to take those arbitrary words on the page and create a very strong visual image that they can manipulate and bend and form. What did that character think? Why did they think that? What do you think you would have done making these connections throughout? So while we're working on narratives in this early stages, it has really, really strong implications for in future academic use, because oftentimes we have kids who are might even be hyperlexic. They're reading. They're reading just fine. They can answer all the concrete questions. What, where, why? No, not why. What, where, who? It's those higher level questions, those abstract questions that come into the higher capacities five, six, and seven that they really struggle with. And so that's when reading comprehension starts to fall apart. And they and they aren't often identified till later third, fourth, fifth grade. And they're great readers, but what's going on? And so if we were to come back, we think about, well, how do they do with these personal narratives, listening to somebody else's narrative, formulating your own? And that's where we could try to impact them sooner rather than later. And if I'm thinking about this in terms of personality psychology, which I haven't done for, you know, 25 years or something. <laughs> Uh, but I still kind of keep my, keep, you know, tabs on what's happening. Um, I think about my own reading comprehension. That was probably my weakest subject in school. It was very strong. I, I mean, I was an excellent student all through school. And then I got to university. I found it a lot harder in certain areas, especially in those more um, abstract kind of comprehension types of things. And when you do that GRE test for uh, grad school and that, you know, the, the um, I forget now what it was called, but the math section and the other one that's more logic or whatever. Analytical. I, I, analytical, yeah, analytical, like I, I got almost perfect on all of those, but it's the verbal section that I was weak in. I, the first time I did it, I got below the 50th percentile and, and then I had an autistic child. So I see in reading self-advocates, a lot of similarities um, that I have with self-advocates, even though it never popped up in my life until I had an autistic child. And if I try and relate to it, I think like, yeah, it's very easy for me to have memorized the whole story and relay back something, but often, and <laughs> people that watch movies with me hate it because I'll be like what I didn't get it and they're like hello you didn't get the point of the movie like right over my head and so I feel like I can relate 
And so I feel like I'm working on those capacities of visualization myself. And in that, and, and this is a total side note, but I've, I've noticed that through a lot of parents, you know, we end up learning about our own FEDCs as we help our children go through theirs. And we're also growing and learning together, which is amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think my own personal floor time journey has, has opened my eyes to this as well. I have learned so much about myself in thinking about my own individual differences, in reflecting on my own capacities. I mean, it has really been eye-opening, this whole journey. It's been, it's, it, it's been decades, but you learn about yourself. But I think that takes us back to the whole narrative. If you see yourself over space and time, which like you said, is capacity six, where we start understanding this, this is when we can see ourselves going back in time, but recognizing this is still me, so we're developing mm -hmm. this very strong sense of self. This is me as a student. This is me as a friend, as a baseball player, as a, this is still me in, in this continuum. And we can reflect about ourselves and how we've changed. So of course, we're getting into the higher capacities then of thinking this is me now, but this was me then and how I've evolved and how I've changed. So if you're able to understand it on one area, then of course, it's going to impact your social interactions, your academic skills as well. And so that's why we see a lot of our kids who just, they hate reading. They, they just hate reading because they're not connecting with anything. It doesn't, they're not feeling anything as they're reading. And so then it just becomes a really tedious job. And then why do it? Because you answered all the questions, I got them right. So now what is the joy in this? I need something that help make, makes me feel and I'm part of it. So a lot of kids then gravitate to the movies because it's the work is done. Yes. work is done. So even thinking about books, right? A lot of teachers don't really care for graphic novels, right? Because they want their kids to read traditional books. But there's so much to be gained from these graphic novels because it's not all there in front of you. You have to figure it out from the pictures and make those transitions yourself and often visualize those steps in between. Yes, you have the picture in front of you, but you have to you have to visualize how they got there and what happened and what these thought bubbles and word what they mean. So it's a very different skill than reading a, a more traditional book. So there is value to it as well. I wouldn't, I would definitely encourage that reading as well. Well, it does make me wonder, and you know, I, I did bring this up with my graduate school advisor a year ago or so, and, and I, and he's retired now. So I wonder if any people are listening and they're in grad school, in psychology and, and in the field at all. Um, maybe I'll have to email that Scott Barry Kaufman guy who does the psychology podcast because he, he did uh, personality too. But, you know, thinking about these things as personality constructs, because neurodiversity wasn't even a word, I don't think, when I was in grad school. And a lot of the things that I found when I filled out personality tests and, you know, we did a lot of test construction and testing students on all these different um, traits, you know, I found that, yes, you tend to, you know, average across situations. So in general, are you introverted? In general, are you extroverted? In general, are you conscientious? In general, but I always thought there's something missing here because um, something is missing in the measurement. And it makes me wonder if there's some kind of construct that's missing that would, um, you know, include neurodivergent individuals and better explain uh, the way personality theories are currently out there. Because I found that even when I took personality tests, it was one extreme or the other. 
So I'm either extremely conscientious or I'm completely not conscientious at all. Like my car will drive, number one marker for conscientiousness is my, I let my car go to empty before I fill up, right? I'm always scrambling, oh crap, I'm on empty. I gotta go fill up. So that makes me low on conscientiousness. But things like pay your bills on time, um, you know, being on top of things, you know, like that kind of stuff, I'm like off the chart high. And then what about neurodivergent things like um, OCD type traits, not the actual disorder, but I have a lot of OCD type traits in my personality. How does that impact these things? And and if if I were, you know, back in my 20s and going back to grad school and doing my PhD, I would want to figure out a way to incorporate like neurodivergent traits into personality studies, because I think it would help explain how a person who is neurodivergent or has a different neurotype visualizes differently or um, because I often feel that I, I do understand other people's intent, but they don't see it. So they'll say, why were you so rude to me? Or why were you, you know, and I'll be like, what are you talking about? Like completely missed the mark, but I understood everything that was going on, but it just didn't show. And so who knows if I have a different neurotype or not, but autism is genetic and my son is autistic. So you never know, but it's really interesting to me because all of this stuff that you're talking about is how we've understood personal narratives. Um, and, and I just wonder what a neurodivergence person's version of visualization intent. And that is, but we do know that if we measure it on a concrete objective scale, yes. Um, someone who struggles with that is not able to show all of the things that we're talking about and we're talking about how we can strengthen that. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm kind of going off on. I do see what you're saying, right? Because we do have this societal tendency to fit in the box. Yes. And to give your personality type. Are you an introvert? Are you this? What is your attachment style? Yeah. Are you, or are you, the, and then we lose the nuance in between because it, we are not this or this. It depends on right? Like maybe you like to have your gas tank go to empty because you get the rush of like, oh, living on the edge, but you don't get that when it comes to not paying your bills. Like you need to get that done. Or I'm so distracted by everything else. I just forget. That's usually, you know, and yeah. So there's, we're, we're nuanced individuals, neurodiverse, neurotypical. We're all, I never like those personality traits because I don't want to be in a box. <laughs> I, I want to be this fluid, nuanced human being. So I don't really like picking the box and figuring out who you are and where you're from. I think we, I like to share that through, through narratives, through telling you about myself in various situations. This is who I am. This is, and, and actually getting to know myself in the same way. Yes. And, and I think one thing that was an insight for me back in grad school was a professor telling me that it's more about the capacity. So yes, you know, you might be labeled an extrovert or an introvert, but do you have the capacity to be a certain way? So like um, there was a scale of like warm, cold or whatever, interpersonally warm or interpersonally cold, you might be an interpersonally warm person, but you have the capacity to be extremely cold. And that's what the test will measure. So it'll say, what? I turned out cold. You know, it doesn't mean you're a cold person all the time. It just means interpersonally, you have the capacity to be and some people may not have the capacity to be very warm interpersonally. And some may not have the capacity to be very cold. So it, it, 
it helps me think a lot about this floor time stuff too. So maybe some of these capacities are in our kids and we're just not seeing them. Um, so how can we pull them out and through, is there, um, are there ways uh, to create the personal narratives? Um, like, okay, let's talk about what the point, last point you made about language. So I'm assuming that you don't just necessarily mean verbal language, but you know, as kids get older, they may be non-speaking and they're typing um, or even speech to text, things like that. Right, right. Communication, all of yes. it. Yes. Verbal, the affective, the gestural, the of course verbal as well. But there is a heavy reliance on being able to share that with the other. First, being able to understand it within ourselves, but then being able to share it with the other is is how we're making connections. Yeah. So there is that very strong um, reliance on language as well. So you were um, kind of talking about well, what? How do we promote this? And a lot of it is this idea of reflecting, reflecting on an experience, but more nuanced because oftentimes we ask, our, we ask our kids when they come home from school, what'd you do in school today? Nothing. Well, yes. Now, is that also part language? Is it partly also a challenge in being able to visualize across space and time? What exactly, and what do you wanna know? What are you interested in when you say, how was school? Are you interested that my pencil broke or are you interested that I did well in my test? Like. How do I gauge what your interest level, what your intent is in asking that question? And then how do I respond? So that and, is it. Or, mm -hmm. And of course, teenagers are like, I don't feel like telling you. So I'm just going to say fine or whatever, nothing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So then there's the emotional piece of it. Well, that I don't, I don't see the value in sharing this with you right now. Yeah. So thinking about how complicated it is, but what we can do as the adults and we can model our narratives. Also using it as a vehicle for sharing this concept of internal thought, sharing our thought bubbles out loud. And it doesn't have to be uh, teachy and you know, a teachable moment. It can just be, I'm thinking about myself. Oh, I'm so frustrated. I left my gas tank out empty. Can't believe I did this again. And that's making me feel agitated. I do this every time. I remember I did this two weeks ago too. Next time, I'm going to remember not to do that. So we think about narratives, thinking about the past in order to plan for the future. As parents, we have this tendency to say what's coming up because we like to prepare our kids for what's coming up. And so we talk about at six o'clock, we'll do this. And on Thursday, we'll do this. And we talk about the future. But do we ever reflect on the past? Remember swimming class from last week? You were a little nervous about that. So you were nervous about such, such and such. What could we do for next week? So we reflect on the past in order to move to the future. Again, how regulating is that? To be able to create that visual image in order to help us kind of understand our own emotions for the future. So that also brings that strong sense of regulation. Um, and also the other beauty about telling your own story, it gives you the sense of agency, right? I am telling my story. I have the words to tell you what happened from my perspective. Right. Oftentimes you hear parents jumping in and saying, yeah, they did really badly at the dentist's office yesterday. Oh, it was terrible. But if the child is able to share and say, I was really scared. And I didn't know what was going to happen. Now they have agency to tell their own story. And how powerful is that? So kind of harnessing all of these skills um, through just simple storytelling is is important. And just general floor time principles 
and the difference between floor time and other approaches is we really do want to promote that agency because as parents, we're so used to just running the show and directing our children, telling them what to do, um, sort of controlling their behavior. And it's really hard when you're trying to stop doing that and letting your child initiate. And, and this is about, this is one example of how to do that. Yes, one example of how to do that and how we can just in the in the truest floor time manner, just infuse it into our daily worlds. We tell stories anyway. We tell stories or when we meet someone, how was your weekend? Oh, guess what I did? And that's how we engage with one another is we tell our personal stories. But thinking about what what we're adding in these stories and, and what we're, um, you know, what we're thinking about and what really, really helps our little ones also to kind of mirror that and share their story, which is, which is such a, um, you know, important skill. But when we were coming back, you had said about the language piece, how we think about praxis. Usually we think about praxis in the body. We think about ideation, sequencing, execution in the body. But if we were to overlay language, there's a lot of language praxis that's also involved. For instance, the ideation, what do I want to talk about? Right. And then the execution and sequencing from a language perspective, you have to have the right words in the right syntactic organization of that sentence with the right timing, with the right affect, with the right gestures. So it is really, really complicated to do. And if you're with a more traditional teacher, they want you to look at you while you're doing all of this. Right. Which can be very challenging. So language praxis is also something that we have to think about. And what impact does that have? in communication and being able to share our story so effectively. How much detail to give? Is this person interested? Are they still interested in what I'm saying? Uh, am I overwhelming them with too much conversation? My brother teases me. Um, I'm like, oh, I have to tell you. And he's like, is this going to be one of your 35 minute long stories that you can tell me in 30 seconds? I'm like, oh. <laughs> but you know, that makes me think of the double empathy problem of Damien Milton and, and how, you know, they've shown that autistics with autistics can communicate very well and and neurotypicals with neurotypicals, but when you crisscross it, there's the challenges. And I hear about autistics sharing with each other and how they love that um, monotropic interests of you know going on and on with details about something. And yeah, I, I'm really going to have to get uh, some self advocate input into these ideas we're talking about because it's it's interesting yeah. to me and just that praxis idea of. I can plan what I'm going to say, but if someone says something I didn't expect, and then can I pivot and, you know, know what to, how to include myself in the conversation kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So um, I think just, you know, we're, you know, talking about when we form these narratives, right? We're building, yes, self-regulation, we're building sense of self, but we're also building theory of mind. What is the other person thinking? This is what I think. I don't agree with you. I do agree with you. Last time you said this, this time you said this, kind of being able to think about the other person's thoughts as well. Perspective taking, who's telling the story, whose point of view is this? That's also really important. So oftentimes when we get kids and we're like, oh, tell me about what happened. And the oh, mom, you tell it, you tell it. But then they lose their sense of agency because now mom's telling it. We want to hear it from you. What did you feel? What did you think? I, we want to hear about the seemingly insignificant details, which are so significant to our little ones, right? Not just 
the big moment, oh, we won the game, but like what went through it? What did, what was it like? So kind of development, develop, developing the ability to tell these stories as well is um, really, really important. And just making sense of an experience. Like I find as I talk about things, that's when my light bulb moments come is when I'm sharing them with somebody, when I'm reflecting on it, when I'm having somebody else, you know, be that mirror for me. That's when I get my biggest aha moments. Oh, now I understand something about the situation and maybe even myself. Absolutely. And we can always get stuck in loops of assuming that the other person thought this or that, or, oh, if I do this, that person's going to do this. And, and it's always in our head. We don't actually know what's going on in the other person's head. We can never know. The other thing that I thought of while you were speaking was um, the emphasis, again, that we want to make so listeners don't misinterpret on that emotional component and the emotional experience, because we can think about cognitive behavior therapy, which really does focus on, oh, let's go back. And, you know, we had this idea that when I did this, this person got upset and you hold that in you like that person is always mad when I do this. And it's a story you kind of made up in your head that isn't true. And then you reframe in cognitive behavior therapy and like, oh, if this, if this thought comes up, I'm going to change my thoughts and then feel different kind of thing, which is very, a very cognitive exercise. And and we're thinking, we want to focus instead on that emotional experience and that reflection. And um, I I will refer back to that interception and um, podcast about that I did with Dr. Glavinsky, the second one on um, create, uh, what is it called? Created emotions. Uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Barrett's work. Lisa, I think that's her name. Barrett Feldman, Feldman Barrett. Um, She talks about how interoception is um, not necessarily, it's, it's not necessarily the way we think about it. Like we can actually have a feeling in our stomach and we will attribute it to something that could be completely false just because that's where we are in that moment. So it's all about balancing our equilibrium and and this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, there's there's so many tangents we can go on here. <laughs> I'm not sure where you want to take it. Right, but just, I, mean, I think more of the emotional piece, right? And yeah. I think, you know, just as parents in today's world, we want, we want all the uncomfortable emotions to just disappear, right? We're usually calling them negative emotions, but there's really nothing negative about emotion. They're really more uncomfortable. Yes. And so we want to fix it. As parents, we do. I mean, I I'm, I feel it all the time. I, I, don't, I don't like seeing my kids sad or disappointed, but I think through my own floor time journey, you understand how absolutely important it is. But I think if we were to layer the concept of narratives, how important it is to sit in it and to feel it and to understand it. And then the most important thing is to reflect on it as well. That's the, and then I thought about it, to be able to reflect and then you come out the other end to say, okay, and this is how I feel. And being able to share that, I think, is also hugely important because in that sharing and that creation of the narrative, that's almost when you just put it out in front of you and you're able to see it, take a step back and actually see it. So I think harnessing the power of storytelling and it's so multifaceted. There's so, like you said, there's so many areas we could jump off with this, whether we're talking about the emotions or interpersonal interaction, socializing or language or, 
or developing sense of self or self-organization as well, um, executive functioning. I mean, there's so many areas that we could go with this, but what, a, and it's so simple also because it's what we enjoy doing. I mean, I think for me, my biggest, uh, my dad was the most brilliant storyteller, brilliant storyteller, not just the words, but sound effects and affect and his timing. And, and that's kind of what led me to really enjoy the storytelling as well. And just, you know, what, guess what happened today? Um, so it, it, it really is a, such a powerful tool. So now I'm, my brain is categorizing things that we've talked about as this creation of personal narrative, this idea of telling our story versus stories we tell ourselves in our head about interactions we've had that impact us going forward, which I see more in terms of self-confidence. So um, people may have had a horrible experience with certain things, like maybe if they got bullied and it's hard for them you know, to be around something and you tell yourself, oh, it's my fault. I'm stupid. I don't know what to do. And you beat yourself up inside if that's happening with our kids. Um, that kind of storytelling, um, I think, is different than the personal narrative thing we're telling, but they're they're intertwined. But um, in terms of that, that that fostering in our children, that idea that I can't control what other people think of me and I can't control what they're going to say or do, but I need to be comfortable enough in myself and have the agency in myself to say what I really feel and think. Um, Amy, I think your last name is Pearson and Kieran Rose just published a book on autism masking, which I haven't read yet, but I will be doing a podcast with them about it. And so many autistic kids, especially women, mask their whole lives because they're people pleasers or, you know, having to not uh, show their true selves. So I think personal narratives comes into that topic as well when we think about it. Like, like I said, if you're beating yourself up inside um, because, you know, the teacher yelled at me every time I fidgeted because and I can't make eye contact. So they berated me when, you know, you start to think you're a terrible person. Right. So even thinking about that, right, the stories we tell ourselves, but those are our internal monologues. But then when we formulate it into an autobiographical narrative and sharing our sharing the idea of actually sharing these narratives is when you share it with another and kind of get a sense of what their feeling is about what you just said and whether it's validated or invalidated. But being the power of putting it out there is also very, very meaningful because what you kind of touched upon is this, what we get so tangled up in, in our own minds. And those stories, if we tell ourselves enough times, those become set in stone, that is how it is. But if you were to share it with another, that's when your whole theory might come crumbling because the other person's like, oh, well, did you think about, or what about, or this is how I see it. Then suddenly that self-reflection piece comes into play as well. So the idea of sharing it and coming back to floor time, isn't it all about relationships and building connections and sharing with another? So also the power of sharing is very, very important. Absolutely. I, that's such an important point because think about the majority of marriages that fail. You know, couples have their stories of what's going on and the communication just hasn't been there. And when you share and communicate and you understand, oh, 
This person wasn't intentionally trying to leave a mess every time they annoyed me. They weren't doing it on purpose. It's just they 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 have different priorities than the other person or whatever. I, that's a simple example. But um, yeah, I think it impacts relationships in general, not just only for our kids developing and trying to form friendships in school, but throughout our lives. Right. And like all things floor time, it's not just for neurodiverse. Floor time is for everyone, right? To yes. think how we make these connections, how we um, expand our narrative capacities, what that looks like in capacity five versus nine. I mean, it's a whole different thing, how that goes across ages. When usually it's at teen age where we start having these robust enough life stories when we're, when kids are able to tell their life story um my kids are now uh when they were at that age at 13 and 15 all of a sudden they're telling them remember when we were little and that was almost the first time that i had heard them do that when they had this capacity for space and time and enough sense of self to go back into their childhood and link it up to where they are today. And I, I would often ask them how they remember, and they would say, we were in the old house, and this happened in that house, and they were able to recreate it and visualize it and what they felt at that time, and then bring that to today and kind of define how they've grown or how they've changed. But only as they're sharing it, are they remembering and thinking about it and adding kind of the depth to their stories as well. So it takes time, development, experiences, all of it to get to that point. And people remember things <clears throat> in in different ways and associate it with different ways. Like you said, your children remember, they associate it with being in that house. I often um, remember different thoughts that I have. I remember exactly where I was, like what corner I was turning on when I was in the car and that happened or whatever. Other people, uh, you know, there's lots of research on the sense of smell uh, brings back such strong emotional memories, especially of loved ones. Like if your grandma wore a certain perfume and she died when you were young and you smell that perfume again, you're right back to being a child at your grandma's house or whatever. Um, so it's interesting um, how that can be a part of narratives too. And, and I don't know, like just in terms of therapies going forward, you know, ways to prompt different types of narratives you could not only the thought bubbles idea that you had, but maybe, um, you know, what um, if you think about being like, maybe you're always in the same place, but for kids who have been to different places, maybe traveling, like if I say to my son, remember when we went to school camp, which is what we called going to a total approach at school camp. Do you remember how you felt when we went to Strasbourg and saw the trains like uh, prompting by by having him recall different locations that he was at or, um, you know, things like that, different meals that you ate. Like, does that make you remember things like through the senses? Right. The ability to recall is exceptional, right? They can recall everything, but is that a narrative? If it's mm -hmm. missing the emotional piece of it, if it's missing the multisensory piece of it. So kind of linking back to that, that's kind of what we need as well. And to think about how important those emotional pieces are, like if we're linking it through smell or linking it through movement or emotion or how we're linking it, just bringing it in the forefront. Yes. Um, there's so little we understand about the emotional world, but I think the fact that it's becoming so much more pronounced in so many areas of research and floor time um, has focused on that for years. And Dr. Greenspan had such insight into that so early before the research came. Um, it's really 
such an interesting, evolving area. Absolutely. And and for every single air, floor timer out there to harness it, whether you're speech or OT or PT or teacher or counselor, it's there for all of us to harness and to bring because it is the emotions. That's what brings relationships. And the R and DIR, that's where we are. So really thinking about that as well. Well, this is so interesting. Um, thank you so much for sharing all this information. And I think hopefully we've sparked a lot of thought in people and um, they will let us know what aspects we missed, what we may have misunderstood, what we can talk about going forward. And we'll have to do a part two and maybe part three and maybe part five. We'll see. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Dara. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. ICDL has a number of courses and services coming up that might interest you. Coming in September are courses from psychologists Dr. Robert Nassif on support for fathers and Dr. Karen Levine on playing through fears and phobias in children. Then in November for six weeks every Friday at lunch is Choosing Play, Setting Up for Success Across the Lifespan. You can find out more information about all of these courses and ICDL's DIR Floor Time Certificate courses at icdl.com courses. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.